you ever made a pie-in-the-sky promise? Do you know what I mean by that? One that's got no basis in reality whatsoever. You know, when you're having those conversations, oh, someday, but we'll, we'll go to the Australian outback. You know, when you've been watching Crocodile Dundee on some catch-up thing, you know, and you think, oh, when the furthest really that you've ever been is Burnley, that's, that's about as far as you've got. Or what about one like this, where you say, oh, yes, of course I'll be on time, when you're supposed to be there in five minutes and you know that you're 20 minutes away. Or, this is one for me, probably, this is definitely my last Pringle, I promise. Yeah? You ever said those things? Pie in the sky promises. No basis in reality whatsoever. But how about this for something that sounds like a pie in the sky promise? It's from the passage that we looked at last week, if you were here. It's a promise to believers that will be mentioned earlier. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What he's saying, though, is if we acknowledge our sins to God, he'll forgive us. He'll pardon us and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds, doesn't it? It has the feel of a pie-in-the-sky promise. And believers down the centuries have found it hard to believe. Especially those that John, who is, is writing to, are unsure about their forgiveness. They're unsure whether they're definitely part of God's people. They're thinking, surely God couldn't forgive that sin, that idea, or, or that sin. Not now I'm a believer. Sure, the stuff I did before, but what about now? Surely I'm beyond the pale. Sure, he can forgive the sin from before I became a Christian, but what about afterwards? Surely it's some sort of system like three strikes and out, or, or something like that, or one strike and out. This promise can't be right, can it? But John is writing to them to assure them that this is right. That their sin, however terrible, has been dealt with and is being dealt with by Jesus Christ. He wants to tell them that they have solid grounds for being assured that they really are true believers. That they really have been forgiven their sin. But there's another group John has in mind as he writes the letter. The other group are those who think that they're genuine believers, but in reality are not. They call themselves Christians, but actually that has no basis in reality when you look at their lives. I wonder what they were thinking as they heard this promise. Oh yes, now we can do what we like. Rob a bank, cheat on my partner, steal some stationery from work. Though most of us are working at home, so aren't we? So stealing stationery is not so, so good at the moment. I can just do that, they're thinking. Admit to God and then get off scot-free. But John is writing to warn them that that's not the case. That if we think salvation by Jesus is an excuse to do what we like, then chances are we're not saved in the first place. So John has this impossible task, virtually, doesn't he? Reassure the unsure and show that I consider it doesn't matter, people, that they're sorely mistaken. I wonder if some of you associate, I wonder if any of us associate with any of those groups this morning. If you're, if you're going through those sorts of things with people that you know. Well, this is what John is going to do to help those two groups. He's going to show the unsure the solid basis for their ongoing forgiveness. And he's going to show the other ones the blueprint of their new life, what it should look like. So first of all, just two points this morning. The ongoing basis of our forgiveness is Christ. Let me read to you chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 again. My little children... 
I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John is saying here he doesn't want to encourage sin. He's writing actually so that they won't sin. But he's aware that these sorts of things, sin, are, are a reality in a believer's life, an ongoing reality. So what happens now, now that we're saved? How is sin dealt with? And it's a serious question. I think over uh, my years as a pastor, I've noticed one of the things that seems to rob people most of their assurance that they really are true believers and where they stand with God is their sin, their ongoing sin. I became a Christian when I was 12. And that means that I've actually spent most of my life as a Christian, 25 years as a Christian, it probably means that the number of sins I've committed since I became a Christian is more after than before. And I can also say that the seriousness of the seriousness the seriousness of the sins is worse since I became a Christian because I'm older. There's only so much that an eleven year old or a ten year old can do. Actually, when you get older, there's more that you can do, isn't there? So don't worry, Carl and Sarah, you've got a bit of time to prepare for a sort of bigger proportion of sins. But that can be really unsettling, can't it? If you think about it. So what about those sins? And here, I think sometimes we get, we get that impression, don't we, that, you know, we, we hear testimonies, and there are wonderful testimonies like Kyle and Sarah's before, but sometimes the impression is given, you know, I used to sing, before I became a Christian, and now that I'm a Christian, I don't sin. But that's not the case, is it, actually? Christians sin, as we were talking about last week. There's no such thing as a sinless Christian. So how does this work? Is it that Jesus gives us a clean slate, and then it's sort of our job to keep it clean? But surely then we just mess it up again. In the Middle Ages, they came up with the idea of purgatory to sort of deal with sins after you've become a Christian. It was a sort of semi-hell for Christians to pay off those sins. But the Bible's answer to what happens to those sins is Christ. Christ is what happens. Christ is how they're dealt with. John wants to show us that God has made more than adequate provision for our ongoing sin, for what happens after we become a Christian. He sets out two things about Christ that show us that we're secure despite our sin. The first is that Christ is our pleader. Christ is our pleader, that word advocate there in verse 1. That's right, yeah, verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is our pleader, our advocate, our defence attorney, our lawyer, if you like. He is standing right now before the Father, pleading our case to him, defending us in the face of accusation. The word advocate there literally means someone who is called alongside you, to sort of stand with you, and stand for you. It's the same word that John uses for the Holy Spirit in his Gospel, when Jesus promises another counsellor will come, that's the same word. Because he's our counsel in the legal sense. He stands here in the courtroom of heaven before the Father, and he pleads for us. What is Jesus pleading though? What's our defence for this ongoing sin? Is it that we're innocent? No, because we're not. The very fact the promise is based on the confession of our sin means that would make no sense. 
It'd be like something you'd see on America's Dumbest Criminals. I don't know if you've ever seen that programme. Where the sort of people stood in court and they, they admit to something and then try and deny it straight afterwards. It would just make no sense. Yeah, I did it, but I'm innocent. It doesn't work, does it? Does he plead extenuating circumstances? No. Because whatever circumstances there, we still have a choice. We still chose to do wrong. Does he plead ignorance? Well, no, because this is after we've come to a knowledge of the truth. So what is Jesus pleading in heaven before the Father? He's pleading his own blood. He's pleading his own sacrifice. He presents his wounds to the court of heaven as proof that the sentence for the crime has already been served. The punishment has already been doled out. Someone wrote once that they were in a courtroom and the defence was that the person who had committed the crime had suffered enough already so they shouldn't go to prison. Well, Jesus' defence before the Father is that he has suffered enough already so that we don't need to take the punishment. Jesus pleads his own cross. How does that work if it's after we've trusted him? Well, if you think about it, time is no trouble for Christ, is it? Christ died for sins on the cross that hadn't been yet committed when he died. There were 2,000 years off into the future. If he could die for sins that were not yet committed 2,000 years off, it is not a problem for him to die for sins after we've become a Christian. So that means that the sins that we committed were included on the cross. Even the sins we committed after our conversion, they're dealt with on the cross. So the righteous one, Christ, pleads for the unrighteous ones for us. And his father, the judge, will hear him. You see, we couldn't stand before the father by ourselves. We couldn't stand in that courtroom. But the righteous one can. Jesus can. He can stand before the father. And he pleads an airtight argument. The sin's been dealt with. Christ, our advocate, our pleader, means that we have a solid, ongoing defence before the father. And that is based on the second thing. He's our pleader, but he's also our propitiation. Now, I know that is a long word. I'll come come to it in a second. Propitiation. That word there means Jesus' death as a sacrifice. That's what it's talking about. It's not a a word we use much, but it is an important one. It means that when Christ died, he died to deal comprehensively with the problem of sin. You see, sin, when when we commit sin... It doesn't just defile us, it angers God. If you do something wrong, it actually affects the people that you do wrong to, doesn't it? I remember a friend of mine uh, who was Irish, who uh, used to tell the story of a person who had uh, done some graffiti on a wall. And he said, you know, uh, imagine that he wrote up Morris is English in big letters on the side of the building. You could deal with the offence, couldn't you? You could deal with the sin, you could wash away the paint. And that would deal with the sin. But you still angered someone, you still upset someone. So actually you need to deal with that too. And that's what this word propitiation means. It means that it deals with God's anger. But people get troubled, don't they, by the idea of a God who is angry. But in one sense, don't we want that? Would we be okay with a God who cares nothing as people are killed? Would we be okay with a God who cared nothing as lives were ruined, as nations were wiped out? Would it be fine that God wasn't angry about those things? Now we have to be careful here. There is a wonderful doctrine known as the impassibility of God. There's another long word for you. 
which means that God doesn't get caught up in human emotions. He's not a victim of his temper, is what it means. You're never going to catch God in a bad mood. That's not the kind of anger that we're talking about. What we mean when we talk about anger is what one commentator called his settled, controlled, holy antagonism to all evil. And just as much as sin needs to be dealt with, God's anger needs to be dealt with too. You can't have fellowship with someone, you can't be friends with someone that you're angry with. But John has good news. He wants us to know that that has been dealt with. The word propitiation means that Jesus has dealt with that anger. Jesus took God's fiery anger on the cross as the sky turned black as the earth quaked. Jesus bore the Father's anger, his own anger as well, against his people. And he bore it willingly. The Father poured it out on him on the cross. And that means that for his people there is no more anger left. If you want a helpful way to think about it, if you do you remember a few years ago there were fires on Ilkley Moor? This all made the national news because they were really quite bad uh, as the fire sort of went up. But people were told to stay away from Ilkley Moor because it wasn't safe with all the fires happening. But there were safe places on Ilkley Moor at that time. Even while the fires were, were blazing, the safe places on Ilkley Moor was where the fire had already been. Because there's nothing more to burn up there. The fire has been there and, and done its work. And now they're actually the safe places. In fact, in Australia, where they have bushfires, you can often see people, when they hear of a bushfire starting, they go around their house and they set little fires around their house. Controlled fires. Why? Because actually, that's the way to keep themselves safe. The safest place is where the fire has already been, where the fire has already worked its destructive force. And Jesus is that safe place for us. God's fiery wrath has already worked its destruction, destructive force on him on the cross. And now there's no more left for us, his people. So what matters is that you're with him, that you're in him, that you're in that safe place by putting your trust in him. So Christ is the propitiation for our sins, that's what it means. Now people tie themselves up in knots. Uh, in that second part of the phrase in verse 2, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, of course you could read it that Jesus was the propitiation for every single person in the world. But then it would make no sense of other things that John says. So in John 3, 36, you'll see it on the back of your notice sheets. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. How could the wrath of God remain on someone if Jesus had dealt with all of God's wrath on everyone by his death on the cross? Better to think that what he's saying here is that Jesus' sacrifice reaches through all space and time. Jesus didn't just die for the apostles, he didn't just die for the Jews, he didn't just die for the first generation of believers. His sacrifice was sufficient for all people, east and west, north and south, past, present and future. His death was not to save a few, but a huge number across the world and across time. So Jesus' sacrifice was big enough for every sin, big enough for every one of his people. So if you sat there thinking, my sin is too big for Jesus, Jesus would never be interested in me. Well, Jesus' sacrifice was big enough to deal with the sin of the whole world. So our sin can't be too big for him. 
If you're unsure, be assured. The basis of, of our forgiveness is not how big or small our sin is or was, but it's how big his sacrifice is. And it was big. Big enough for the whole world. He's the propitiation, and he pleads that for the Father. Well, does that mean, then, that we can do as we like? Jesus died for our sins. We have Jesus as our personal defence lawyer, if you like. We can literally get away with anything, can't we? Is that it? Well, no. This is our second and last point. The ongoing blueprint of our life is also Christ. This is the check to those who are falsely assured that they are part of God's people. If you've been with us so far through the series in 1 John, we've talked about tests that John lays down to help us know whether we are actually with him or not, whether we're a Christian or not. We had the historical test the first week. Do we agree with John that Jesus was real and physical and died and rose again really and physically? If not, says John, then we're not a Christian, whatever else we believe. And then John introduced the moral test last week. Has our life and moral behaviour changed as a result of our faith? And now in typical John style, John does things around in like big circles, in like spiral staircase almost, coming back to the same ideas. He comes back to that same test from a different angle. Have our lives been changed and shaped by Jesus and his word? That's what he wants to know. In other words, is Jesus our prophet and our pattern? If he's our pleader and our propitiation, he must also be our prophet and our pattern. We can't have a half of Jesus. We've got to have the whole Jesus. So firstly, Christ is our prophet. Have a look again at verses 3 to 5. I'll read them to you. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, is the love of God perfected. Jesus is our prophet. I mean by that, he spoke God's word to us. So think about it from what we've seen so far. Jesus could have come, lived his whole life as a carpenter, never said anything publicly, died on the cross, rose again, did all the other stuff that we've talked about. And it was still a work, wasn't it? In one sense. But actually, it's telling that he didn't stay as a carpenter. He spent the last three years of his life teaching, didn't he? We can't separate Jesus' teaching from his person. We can't have Jesus as our saviour by his death and ignore what he said in his life. Jesus is the message, as we said a couple of weeks ago, but he brought a message too. He preached, he taught. If we are his, we'll listen to his commands. We'll do as he says. Jesus says in John's Gospel, in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In what sense can we say that we follow Jesus if we don't do what he told us to do? How can we call him Master and Lord if we don't do what he says? John's answer is simple. You can't. Not without lying. If we say we know him but don't obey his commands, then we don't really know him. If we did, we'd obey him. Not perfectly. That's uh, back to our last point, isn't it? But that would be the general direction of our life. One of obedience to his word, to his commands. John has much to say on what that looks like, but that's for the coming weeks as he goes back round that spiral staircase. 
But our lives are being to conform to what Jesus taught. If not, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we know him at all? And secondly, linked to this, he's our prophet, but he's also our pattern. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's not just what Jesus taught that should influence our lives. It's worth noting that the New Testament is not just made up of teaching of letters and things to tell you how to live. Actually, even the Gospels don't just present the teaching, they present the life. The way that he lived. That's part to show, partly to show what it means to live in the right way. He was sinless, pure, light. In him there was no darkness. That's John's language. It shows us that he was perfect, that he could be our sacrifice. But it also shows us how to live. It's almost as though John is saying, I refer you back to my previous book. You know, go back to the, the prequel and have a look. Look at how Jesus walked. Look at how he lived. Now, does that mean then that we need to give up our jobs, find 12 followers, go and live in the Middle East, and sort of go for a walk round? No, <laughs> thankfully. The Bible talks about us being made like Jesus, but it means walking like him, being conformed to his image in the way that we act, in the choices that we make, in the way that we treat others, putting others before ourselves, caring for the needy. Jesus washes his disciples' feet, doesn't he? He lays down his life for others. He does those things and he tells his disciples to do the same. Jesus always practiced what he preached. So if we want to follow what Jesus said, then our lives will look like the way Jesus lived. We'll live cross-shaped lives, pouring out ourselves for others. Christ is our pattern. So what John is saying by this whole passage is that we can't claim to have Jesus as our propitiation and our pleader if we don't have him as our prophet and our pattern. We can't have him as our present tense saviour if we haven't got him as our present tense Lord. Now it may be that you sat here this morning or at home uh, behind the screen and you're thinking, well actually I don't claim to have Jesus as my propitiation and pleader. Well in one sense you're not in John's sights. You're probably living consistent with that belief. But that doesn't, of course, mean that you're okay, because actually you don't have Jesus as your propitiation or pleader. There is no one stood before the Father pleading for you. The fierce wrath of God, taken by Christ on the cross, remains on you, as John said in John 3. You may be consistent, but you're in consistent peril. I will plead with you to turn to Christ, Repent of your sin, confess your sin to him, and trust in him to be your saviour before it's too late. Others here or watching may be in one of the other two groups. You may be claiming to have Christ as your sacrifice, your saviour, but not doing what he says. Your life doesn't resemble his in any way. Well, I would plead with you the same. Turn to Christ. Repent of your sin, confess your sin to him, and trust in him to be your saviour. To be your sacrifice, to be your sovereign Lord who is to be obeyed. Don't hear me wrong. It's not the obedience that saves you. We're not saying you know, pull up your socks and it's all fine. But obedience points to something having happened. And no obedience points to nothing having happened. So turn to him. And as I said last week, it doesn't matter in one sense whether that's for the first time 
or whether it's coming back to him, what matters is that you experience that real forgiveness and real change. And then lastly, perhaps you're in that first group we mentioned. You're unsure where you stand before God. You find it hard to believe that God could go on forgiving. You find it hard to believe that you're part of his people. Well, remember the certainties that John has given us. Christ pleads for us before the Father. Christ was our propitiation. He died to take all of sin and all of God's wrath for our sin. John writes in 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not pie in the sky promise. It's based on the fact that Christ went to the cross. It's based on the fact that Christ cares and pleads for his people. So it depends on him, not on us. So take heart. Be assured it's not pie in the sky. It's cake to take, which we'll also have in a few moments' time. So uh, let's pray before we uh, last time. Father God, thank you that Jesus died on the cross in our place. Father, thank you that he pleads before the Father for us. Father, if we're far away from you, help us to come near. Father, if we're unsure about where we stand, help us to take courage and boldness from what we've read and what we've heard. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.